Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris I'm Mick Garris, and from the lonely, remote, nice guy productions world headquarters overlooking the eerily isolated San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. Let's talk once again about monsters, creatures, the nightmare beings that haunt our dreams. Mythic creatures that stalk human prey go back to time immemorial. Giants, cyclopses, human-animal hybrids, and mysterious creatures of the sea have been around since before Greek mythology and are more ubiquitous than ever today. Yes, they can be metaphors for the social ills, for the outcasts, for the others among us, but they can also just be hugely entertaining, imaginative creations to make our horror-loving lives even more wonderfully horrible. The creature creators behind our favorite movies and television are working at the height of their powers these days, and their imaginations are remarkably fertile. The technology available today has allowed these dark artists to combine practical effects and computer-generated imagery to create remarkably realistic and earthbound terrors. We will always pay tribute to those gifted, wicked artists on Postmortem. We've had conversations with Bill Corso, the Kyoto Brothers, Tony Gardner, and our guest KMB partner, Howard Berger, on the show, and we will continue to dig deep into the work of the people who make our monsters. But some of these monster makers have stepped beyond the boundaries of the Makeup Effects Lab and turned to directing and producing themselves, William Malone, Chris Wayless, Stephen Kyoto have all moved into the director's chair, as well as making monsters. Our guest, Greg Nicotero, is one of them. Though KNB's work is ubiquitous, featured in features and television of every type and budget, Nicotero has guided the zombies of The Walking Dead since the show's inception under Frank Darabont. But he became a producer on the show and not long after began directing some of their most important season opening and closing episodes. And his own series, Shudder's Creep Show, is launching its second season. So what better time to catch up with the guy who started making zombies for George Romero and now heads up the greatest army of the undead ever on The Walking Dead. We'll find out his horror legacy after this. 
watch curated cult films free for 30 days with the Arrow Video Channel on Apple TV. This month, the Arrow Video Channel unleashes a whole host of horror delights, including Lucky McKee's The Woman, streaming in 4K, Larry Cohen's demonic dessert classic The Stuff, Sea Monster Saga Blood Tide with James Earl Jones, plus Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway, guaranteed to blow your mind with a heady mix of Afro-futurism, Cold War paranoia, and Kung Fu, now streaming exclusively on the Arrow Video channel. Switch on, tune in, and start your 30-day free trial now. Fangoria is honored to publish postmortem host Mick Garris's latest book, These Evil Things We Do, The Mick Garris Collection. Whether a story about a plastic surgeon with a uniquely disturbing approach to his job, to tales of a deranged child genius obsessed with his teacher, These Evil Things We Do, The Mick Garris Collection, explores mankind's capacity for limitless evil, and how often that evil hides in plain sight. This collection brings together four of Mick's works for the first time in a single volume, along with a brand new novella called Free. These Evil Things We Do is now available on Kindle and paperback through Amazon.com. So, Greg, it all started, you were lucky enough to be born in the cradle of zombiedom in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, I was I was probably about 15 minutes away from the ground zero of zombie lore, which is Evan City, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So 1968, Night of the Living Dead, kind of shattered everybody's expectations of horror movies and and went, turned into something different. You were like four or five years old when that came out. But when did it reach into your consciousness? Well, weirdly enough, I think part of it was always uh, it was it started and kind of snowballed because one of the actors uh, in Night of the Living Dead was Bill Cardell, who plays the newscaster. He's the guy that's like, yeah, so chief, what do you think? You know, he he interviews everybody. He also was uh, a local celebrity. He had a show called Chiller Theater in Pittsburgh. Uh So it became very strange for me for two reasons. Number one, that when I finally saw Night of Living Dead, I saw the news reporter was the same news reporter that I had seen on TV. And when they got into that sequence where they were showing the rescue stations, Mm -hmm. they were all places that were right around my house. (laughs) So... It, it became oddly personal for me. Like Night Living Dead seemed more real because they would talk about Wheeling, West Virginia or Steubenville or all these places, Beaver Falls, all these places that I knew were close by. So it made it almost as if the zombie apocalypse was literally happening in my backyard. And when was your interest in monsters and makeup uh, stoked? Where did that begin? Well, my parents my parents are big, big movie buffs. And they loved 
all kinds of movies. My dad loved the James Bond movies, but they were big into Universal Horror and Christopher Lee, you know, like the Hammer wow. movie. Now this so, is good parenting. And still to this day, you know, I mean, anytime a movie would come out, my parents would go see it. And then the next day they would take my brothers and I to the theaters. So I think it really started with that idea of my parents sort of embracing horror movies and letting us see those films that probably were not necessarily suitable for kids my age. But I, the first two movies that I remember seeing uh, was Time Machine and Horror of Dracula. Wow, that's and a Horror good of Dracula was really Horror of Dracula was really terrifying. You know, that, that famous shot of Chris Lee when he when his eyes are bloodshot and he hisses and the fangs and yeah. the blood all over his face. That, that, that image, still iconic uh, as ever to me. Um, and so between my parents sort of never really um, discouraging my love for, for movies and, and horror stuff, plus they would bring me the Aurora Monster Model kits um, so they would go out to dinner on a Saturday night and they would swing by the hobby shop and they would bring home a model for me to build. So I would sit in the basement and watch Chiller Theater and I would paint Frankenstein or the Wolfman. So that would have been around 1972 because that's when Aurora sort of re-released all of the monster models in the big square glow boxes. Yeah, I, um, I remember the original ones when I was a kid and I, a local department store had their Master Monster Makers contest and I have one of those plaques for oh, being a Master Monster okay. See, I never had the big boxes, uh, the, the big long boxes. I only had the, the 1972, the square boxes. Mm, okay, well. We go back to the OG anyway. Um, so was it, did you start, you started making the models and painting the models. Were you an artist as well? You Were you sketching? Were you drawing monsters? Were you creating in that way? I was. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things, if I didn't have a monster model to build, um, I would sit and watch movies with my sketch pad and I would start drawing you know, I, I started collecting movie stills. You probably even know this company. Um, I think he's still around, actually. His name was Jeff Siliphant, and he owned a company called Still Things. Hmm. Do you remember, do you remember no, that I, company? I, I don't know them. So I found out about this guy. He was in uh, the back of Starlog magazine, and you would send away a dollar fifty, and you'd get a catalog, and he would describe different moments from movies and you would order stills from him. So I started collecting movie stills from my favorite horror films, like from The Exorcist and uh, War of the Worlds and Time Machine. And ultimately as, you know, like when The Howling came out in American Werewolf in London, this guy was the one guy who had photos of the creatures and photos of the puppets, you couldn't find them anywhere else. So I would send money to this guy and he would send me eight by 10, beautiful, glossy eight by 10 stills. 
And I started wow. recreating those stills and drawing them. A funny story, God, I haven't thought about this guy in a long time, was when I moved to Los Angeles, I went and met this guy. He lived in uh, Sun Valley. And I, I don't even remember how I got into contact with him. I said, hey, I moved to Los Angeles. I'd love to come by and say hello. And I remember going to his house and his walls were covered in signed eight by 10 photos of every, everybody and anybody that you could imagine. Like he was, a, he was a collector and he was a vendor. You know, Starlog used to have their little um, pull out sheets of like when conventions were happening and then the vendors that you could buy posters from and you could buy stills from. So <clears throat> I feel like this guy, Jeff, really did a tremendous amount for me because he made access. Uh, he gave me access to photos that of Rick Baker's work and Rob Bottin's work and Savini's work. And I could study it. I had a, you know, because VCRs didn't really, uh, weren't uh, as prominent back then. So you had to work for it. The one thing I always say about horror fans and and Mick, you're right there with all of us, of course. Yeah. Is you had to work at it. If you were a fan of of the genre, the aside from famous monsters, the only way that you could get your steady influx was you'd have to get the TV guide, and it would come on Thursdays, and you'd go through the TV guide and you'd circle when movies were going to air, and then you had to be in front of your TV. At that time, if you wanted to, yeah, you know, three a.m. You'd set an alarm clock so you'd, and it would always say movie melodrama rather than yes. horror. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I think some of the most heartbreaking moments for me was I would stay up until twelve forty-five, and there was a movie coming on at one o'clock, and I was I would sit there with a washcloth, wetting my face to try to stay awake. My brother, uh, my brother and I used to have a contest. <laughs> we could stay awake longer. And you'd be sitting there and you'd be watching the TV. And then the next thing you knew, it was Sunday morning and you missed it. Oh, um, yeah. And, and, that, and you could never know when those movies were going to be on again. So you had to really work on it. And then you'd get famous monsters and you'd, you'd take a magnifying glass and you'd study the photos in the Westmore's workshop or in Jack Pierce doing makeup on somebody. Um, but it was a really interesting journey for me because I was very, very interested in, um, I was very interested in makeup effects and creature effects. But then I, I think when the reruns of Star Trek and Lost in Space and Land of the Giants started hitting, then I was sort of, kind of equally fascinated with models and miniatures, you know, like mm. spaceship and, you know, like all Greg the Jean stuff. Yeah. Greg Jean stuff and LB Abbott, uh, mm. who was the sort of in-house uh, 20th century Fox guy, you know, there was Lidecker uh, and LB Abbott and they built all the models and miniatures for all the Fox uh, TV shows. And then they went on to work on, Poseidon Adventure and Herring Inferno. So I was, I was realized that my fascination wasn't with just making monsters and makeup, but 
that I, I was sort of broadening my horizons and I loved miniatures and I loved models. And look, all those Godzilla movies, I don't think there's a person in the world that didn't at one point or another fantasize about wearing a Godzilla suit and stopping <laughs> through a soundstage filled with miniatures of buildings. I mean, come on. Yeah, how crazy. Yeah. Well, um, when I was a kid, I first, I wanted to be a makeup artist before I started writing. And I, cause I loved monsters. I wanted to make them. And then once I started writing, cause I drew as a child and, and my father had been a trained artist and I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then I started writing and that completely changed the course of, of the direction of my life. Wow. Well, listen, there's not, there's not a tremendous amount of difference. If you think about people like <clears throat> me and you and Guillermo del Toro and Frank Darabont um, and John Landis, all of our friends, I feel like we all were at that same spot where it was like we were influenced by Ray Harryhausen and yeah. Universal Monsters. And then there was just that nudge, you know, it's, it's like that line from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just takes a slight nudge to make you nudge you into the shadows, you know, when, when yeah. Bella talking to Indy. And I always, I always think that we all have that, that moment and that moment of like what nudged you into being a writer director versus what nudged me into being a makeup effects artist. Uh, or what nudged people into like Spielberg into directing, you know, I mean, there was, there were those, I feel like we were all like in the same bus. It's just like the bus would stop and somebody would get off and then the bus would keep going. But we all have that shared, we have all that shared experience. You know, we can have conversations about um, who wrote or who directed or who did the effects for a specific movie. And, every single person can contribute to the conversation. Yeah, even uh, though, you know, some of us felt like this was never possible for me, I mean, to actually be a part of making movies. But, you know, you had, I was born in LA. So that was incredibly fortunate for me, though no one in my, my experience had any involvement in film or television or entertainment at all. But, but I was here where that was happening. For you, you were in a very specifically uh, horror-centric place, being yeah. where George Romero was based and made all of his movies. So tell me how you first got involved with George and Tom Savini. Well, it, again, it's kind of funny because if I would have lived in any other city, uh, other than Pittsburgh and had the same upbringing. If you would have took my family and put us in Harrisburg or Philadelphia, everything would have been different for me. It was fortuitous that I happened to live uh, within 40 minutes of where George Romero lived. So, you know, the, I knew who he was and, and he was a big, he was a big deal at the time, and of course still is in my head and in a lot of people's head, but because he was sort of a local celebrity, he was our, he was Pittsburgh's link to Hollywood. Right. And you know, if you, anytime you talk to Tom Savini, Tom would always say, I didn't have to go to Hollywood to get into the movie business because the movie business was in my backyard. And I benefited from that, from that same scenario. But ironically, whereas, Tom went to Carnegie Mellon and he studied 
acting and he did stunts and he did all the stuff. That's how he met George. But with me, my uncle Sam was an actor and he was a disc jockey on a local radio station. He was a writer. He had written Sorry, a couple of articles. Excuse me about- just one sec. Excuse me one sec, because we are having the occasional freeze-ups, and I just want to apologize to the audience that um, we are doing this remotely for safety purposes during the coronavirus, and the technology uh, is not always perfect, and so I, I apologize to any of the sound glitches that we have, but we're doing the best with what we can do, and so back to Greg. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't... Uh... I didn't realize we were having glitches, but um, that's good. But listen, so what was what was interesting is my uncle, Sam, who was a actor, uh, he was a disc jockey and he was very, very much interested in uh, in entertainment and movies and the arts. He ended up working on the crazies. He was an actor that got hired by George. So not only did I have the advantage of the proximity in Pittsburgh. But when I finally actually met George in person, we had something in common. We had something to share, which was uh, my uncle who had interviewed George for a couple magazines. I think he had even done a Cinefantastique interview with George. So George knew who I was. He's like, he knew the name. So he said, oh, you should come by and visit the office someday. And it was just that it was almost that simple in a, in a weird way. Um, So we became friends and George considered me part of the family. So when they were filming creep show, George had invited me out to visit and he said, Hey man, you know, we're doing this movie. And if you're interested, if you want a job, we can give you like a production assistant job. I think this was summer of 1980. I, I sometimes I forget, I get the, the dates a little a little wonky, but it was the summer before I was uh, a senior in high school. I graduated one, so it wow! Been what an opportunity, yeah. And I said no. <laughs> I, I I just kind of said, you know, I don't. Uh, you know, I'm getting ready to get. You know, I'm going to go off to college, and I'm going to do this, and I don't think I could really make that work, but thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. But, you know, if it's cool, I'd still love to come visit and hang out. And he said, yeah, just call anytime and you can come out. So I visited the set of Creepshow when I was, you know, when I was younger and that's where I met Tom Savini. So again, that sort of fortuitous meeting of George Romero, I met George and was friends with George before, long before I had ever met Tom. So what were you planning on studying uh, when you were going to go off to college? What was your plan to pursue? I was pre-med. I was, uh, I was intending on taking over my dad's practice because my dad uh, was a kidney specialist. And my dad had kind of said, well, you're going to take over my practice and you're going to follow my (laughs) footsteps. And I was like, okay. And, you know, I always looked at, at creatures and monsters and movies and stuff. It was always a hobby. You know, I collected monster magazines and I collected models and I did drawings and that kind of stuff. But it was always a hobby. I never thought for a second that I could have transformed my hobby into an actual job. 
I never thought that. I just thought, well, you know, it's something that people that live in Hollywood do. Um, so I never really understood it or even thought that it was a feasibility in any way, shape or form until, um, until I visited the set of Creepshow and I got to be friends with Tom and Tom would do appearances at local conventions and he would talk about his work and I would go with him. I would be like sort of like his helper and I would take all the props and put them on stage for him. And then he would get up and he'd talk to a group of maybe 60 or 80 people. Cause you know, they had creation conventions and they were small though. They weren't big. Like the conventions in Pittsburgh were more Star Trek based, but Tom was local. Mm -hmm. Tom would go and do these conventions. Um, and I have pictures of like me, um, sitting with Tom and on the stage was like the creep from creep show and Ed Nate mask and the Friday the 13th, um, uh, head and like a Jason Voorhees bust, a lot of those, those props that Tom kept. So I started becoming more and more aware of and fascinated with the art of special effects because I would spend time with Tom and that was really, that was really what fine tuned everything and honed it in for me. So in 1984, I had start. I had been in college for three years and I went down to have lunch with George at his office on Fort Pitt Boulevard. And he said, Hey, we just got a green light to do day of the dead. Do you want a job? And of course I flashed back to several years earlier when I had said no. And I went, okay, I'm not going to get another, opportunity like this. So I gotta, I gotta take it. So and I this said, was I would, while you had, you'd spent three years uh, in college uh, studying pre-med with the intent of taking over your father's business, right? That's correct. I was minoring in history and art. So I was, I had taken a lot of art classes in college as well, but my main study was biology. So when I talked to George, I said, well, listen, I want to be Savini's assistant. I want to be his, his right hand because it was three years of Tom and I becoming good friends. So I remember, and this was before cell phone. So I had to, I left, I drove home. I got back to my house. I went upstairs and I told my parents I was going to take a semester off of school because I had gotten this offer to work on a movie and they were cool about it. Weirdly enough, they were like, okay, you're going to go back to school in January. Great. And I called Tom and I said, Hey, I just got hired on day of the dead. I want to be your assistant. And that was how it went down. And it was funny because the line producer, David Ball and Richard Rubenstein and George were delighted um, because Tom was, Tom was very much the artist and they felt that by having somebody there to sort of manage his department, order supplies, um, handle the scheduling and the paperwork and the breakdowns would, would allow Tom to be freed up to design the effects. So Tom could be 100% um, artistic and I would handle the business aspect of the, of getting the resumes and setting up the interviews and helping to hire the crew. So that became my first job. My first job was sort of the production manager for Tom Savini. 
So that was the beginning of your zombie experience. It was more doing the nuts and bolts business. How about your move into the creative side of that? Well, you know, one of the things that was interesting was we had our hero makeups and there was a makeup effects team. It was Everett Burrell and John Vulich and a guy named Mike Tursick and Howard. Uh, Everett and Howard came in a couple of weeks later and then they did a lot of the hero makeups and I helped out on those, but I didn't really, I didn't really have a lot of hands-on experience like those guys. I mean, Mike Tursick uh, was a sculptor, but but was more a little more experienced than me makeup wise. But John Everett and Howard had worked in Hollywood. They had worked for John Beekler. Um, they had some experience. So when we ended up bringing those guys in, it was like we're bringing in the guys from Hollywood. Uh, Vulich had been on the show pretty much from the beginning, but we brought Everett and Howard in later. So it was really trial by fire for me you know i mean i learned about pax paint i learned about airbrushes and i learned about putting on foam latex and duo adhesive where you would blend it off with duo i i learned a lot of that like literally in the trenches um watching tom apply makeups and then watching the guys apply makeups i mean i always thought that john volich was by far the best makeup artist um, just his style really kind of set the visual tone for what uh, Day of the Dead looked like. But then we also had all these other background zombies that we had to do. So there was a whole team of people that were responsible for using latex and oatmeal and gluing latex and oatmeal to people's faces and then <laughs> painting their faces um, different colors and then we were painting their hands and using streaks and tips and all this stuff. So I jumped back and forth between doing background zombies and doing and, and assisting on the hero zombies. And there was um, a few sculptures that I had done. I sculpted a few hand appliances and I sculpted a few wounds, plates of wounds that we would glue on zombies and things like that. But I wouldn't necessarily say that I was the most experienced because it was my first job. So I, I was having the opportunity to learn the nuts and bolts of production as well as being involved in the creative side. And so after Day of the Dead, I felt like I had a pretty unique perspective of filmmaking, not only from the production side, but from the effects side. So I moved to New York in, Janu in January of 1985 and Richard hired me immediately to work on Tales from the Dark Side, but he wanted me to be involved in the production side of it. Hmm. He was like, listen, you should work in the production office and you know, maybe we can groom you to be a producer or an assistant director or something like that. So Richard really kind of saw what I what I was capable of and, and hired me on Tales from the Dark Side. But of course, at the same time, Tom was still getting job offers to work on movies like Invasion USA and so as soon as Tom would call me and say, hey, you want to come do another effects job? That was really my first love. So I would leave New York and then I would go and I would work with Tom and I got to do more. I got to sculpt more. I got to apply more makeups um, between, uh, between Invasion USA. And then I went back to New York and did effects on Tales from the Dark Side on episodes that Tom had directed. So I was getting more and more experience as an effects artist. And then... 
later that year, I moved to LA. And within being in LA in two weeks, I got hired uh, by Stan Winston's studio to puppeteer uh, Invaders from Mars and be on set and work with Toby in- Hooper. Yeah. With Toby Hooper. That was the first time I, m- I met Toby. And Toby was a hunter. And Hunter, Toby, when the way I'll never forget <laughs> the way Toby directed Hunter uh, was he would have him memorize faces. And then he would be, Hunter, face 29. That was how he would get the kid um, to actually react to a specific face. That's uh, good child acting there. Yeah, It was indeed. But that show uh, opened up a lot of doors for me because I met Alec Gillis. Uh, I met a lot, uh, Steve Wang. I met uh, Matt Rose, Gino Crognali, who now has been sort of like my right-hand man for since 1985. I met a lot of really talented guys there and again, just continued to sort of, you know, uh, work up into the ranks. You know, I got hired by Mark Showstrom and I sort of was Mark's production manager for several years before we started K&B. So I worked on Evil Dead 2 and Phantasm 2 and Deep Star 6 and managed, uh, managed his department and then was on set puppeteering and then doing makeup and that was kind of how everything led to Evil Dead 2 and me working. That was the first time I had ever worked with Howard and Bob Kurtzman. The three of us had worked together uh, on that movie. And we realized that we complemented each other. I had the business skills and the onset um, uh, skills. And, you know, Howard sort of was the good kind of guy who ran the shop and sort of monitored everything and bob was kind of like the guy who designed things so so this was the birth of knb this was what 86 87 something 86 it was evil dead 2 was 86 and then i went back to los uh back to pittsburgh and worked on monkey shines in 87 uh and then came to went back to la in the beginning of 88 and that's when uh, that's when K&B got our first job, which was Scott Spiegel hired, called me one day and said, hey, I'm doing this movie for Charlie Band called Intruder, and we need we need some kids to do some makeup in their garage because we don't have any money. We have like 2000 bucks." And I said, well, Scott, we'll do it. I said, me and Bob and Howard have wanted to, you know, have our own company, but it's that same catch-22. You can't get hired to do your first job until you've done your first job. (laughs) Right, yes. We couldn't convince anyone to hire us, but Scotty knew me from Evil Dead 2, and he and I had become friends, and that was how we got our first job. Well, the unique thing about KNB to this day is that, you know, originally it was a company that did very low-budget stuff. It could do really good work on a tiny budget. But it has expanded, and KNB will still do really small budget shows as well as the Oscar bait shows and, and all of the, uh, everything from the giant studio productions down to the smallest indie films. And, and it's because you guys have a passion for it and for the genre, it seems to me. Well, listen, we, we always know where we came from. And I think one of the things about, Uh, I can speak most specifically about Howard because Howard and I, you know, I mean, Bob left the company uh, over 
God, he left in 2003, I think. So it's been yeah. 15 years since Kurtzman's been gone from the company. So he's been gone longer than he was at K&B. But we really do love it. I mean, we're still inspired by movies and we were filmmakers. I mean, we, we appreciate every aspect uh, that goes into uh, making film. Well, let me tell and, you, I mean, I want to relate my experience with K&B because once I started working with you guys, every time I can choose a company, it's it's been K&B. And most notably, all 26 episodes of Masters of Horror mm -hmm. were done by you guys and just so many things we've done together. And it's there's never any drama. You know, yes, there will be times where there's not enough time or money to do it the way we'd like to, but there's always this, we can do that, no problem. You and Howard are two guys who have been through all of the trenches together and apart and know how to roll with the punches. And it's it's such a pleasure to work with you guys doing such great work. And the pride of your work continues no matter how long you've been doing it. It never slacks. Well, thank you for thank you for saying that. I mean, it's it's really important to us because we love it. You know, if I didn't love it, I wouldn't do it anymore. And I think that's a lot of times when people you can tell when people don't love it because it shows. And, you know, Mick, what what's interesting about what you said is the idea of never really saying, no, we can't do that, but sort of stepping back to huddle to figure out what we can do is really, I think, one of the defining things about our company. You know, we were working on, this was 19, end of 1995, we had done From Dust Till Dawn, and we were working on a movie called Eraser, a Joel Silver movie, and we had to build some animatronic alligators. And... <laughs> Chuck Russell directed the movie and ILM was doing the visual effects and we built a, a eight foot and a 12 foot and a 14 foot animatronic alligators. And these things were massive and they were heavy. They were beautiful, but like you had to bolt them to the floor in order to get them to move because the torque on the mechanism was so strong that it would literally flip the puppet over. So we would bolt them to the ground. And I remember going to set with, um, with one of the heads and showing Chuck Russell. And he's like, hey, I want the eye to blink and I want to do this and I want to figure that out. I'm like, okay, I drove to Long Beach with this alligator in the back of my car. And I went back to the shop and I'm like, guys, we got to figure out how to get that little nictating membrane to work. Then we get on set and the first thing Chuck says is, well, I want this alligator to crawl six feet across the floor. And <laughs> They were never built to do that. These things weighed, you know, 1,400 pounds. Right. But we had built front leg movement, four-way cable movement on the puppets. So I, we sort of kind of regrouped. And I said, what if we got like a little creeper dolly and we put the, the, the alligator on top of the dolly and we just pulled it. And as we pulled it, we operated the front legs. And that's what we did. And we were off to the side. This was at Universal. And we were like trying to figure all this out. 
And I remember the visual effects guys coming over and just watching us. And they were just kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. It was Steve Williams and a guy, uh, Denise Reem and a guy named Clint, uh, Clint Goldman. They were standing there kind of watching us. And we got on set and we put the alligator there and we pulled it and we moved the legs and it worked well enough for us to get the footage that we needed to get the shot. And Chuck came over and he was very appreciative and cut to six months later, we get a phone call from New Line Cinema. And they're like, hey, uh, we're gonna do this movie called Spawn and we got a request from ILM to hire you guys. <laughs> and I went, oh, well, that's interesting. So we have our meeting and it was, uh, it was Clint Goldman and it was Mark DePay, the director and Denise Reem. And I said, what made you guys call us? And they said, you know, we watched you on set of Eraser and we watched you troubleshoot a virtually impossible request from the director and you never said no. You just said, give me a minute. And you went off with your team and you guys figured out a way to make it work. And you came back with a solution. And they said, we're going to make this movie. And those are the kinds of people that we want to work with. So well, and that's been my experience with you guys as well. You know, everything we've done together, there's always a time where you're going, oh, shit, we need this to do something that wasn't planned this way. And the punches are rolled with, and what ends up is usually better than what what the original plan was. Well, I, I, I'm really I'm really appreciative that you would that you recognize that about us because it really I feel like it really defined Kane B. And I'll tell you, Mick, the most interesting aspect for me, which listen, I never I never really had aspirations to direct. I used to think, you know, I wanted to direct once just because I wanted the experience of doing it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say, yeah, I've directed something because I felt like if, if everything that I've done in the industry, I would have liked that experience. So I had always thought, yeah, I'd like to direct something just one time just to see what it's like. So after I directed my first episode of Walking Dead was in season two. I finished and then I went right on to do Django Unchained with Quentin. And he, all he wanted to talk about was what my experience was like directing. He wanted to know what I thought of being a director. What, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for days we spent two or three weeks up at Lone Pine filming the opening and he just want, was so interested and intrigued about my impressions of directing. But the most unique thing came out of it that I would have never expected. It recalibrated how I design effects because I realized as a director that there are instances where something might change. You might want to put the camera in a different place or the actor, you might block the scene and the actor might come from come in and say, oh, I wouldn't go that way. I want to go this way. There are a lot of organic factors in making movies. And what I realized is that there have been instances where creature effects or makeup effects could limit how a director visualizes a scene because of how it's built. So you have to design makeup effects with the director's 
vision. And I think what Howard and I had been doing without even really realizing it is we were designing things to allow the directors the most flexibility that they could have. So when we got into shooting Django Unchained, there's a scene where Jamie Foxx is being tortured and Quentin doesn't ever, he's not the kind of guy that will sit down and tell you what he needs for a scene. He will talk about the scene and then he will trust me to go off and figure out how to do it. Like the car crash in Grindhouse where the bodies get torn to pieces. You know, he didn't really, he didn't really write what he wanted. He wrote the impressions of what should happen. And then I would shoot tests and send him the tests and say, is this kind of what you had in mind? But on Django, what I realized is I needed to provide Quentin with the tools to shoot the scene the best way that he wanted to shoot, knowing that he's not going to know where the camera is going to go immediately because Quentin is the kind of guy who likes the process to be very organic. Like he doesn't storyboard stuff. He doesn't previs stuff. He, he relishes the idea of this is how movies get made. Um, and he really, he embraces that and it shows in his movies. It's brilliant. So when we built this stuff, he came up to the shop before they went to New Orleans and I showed him everything that we had built. And he was like, what, how did you know what I would need for this, for this sequence? And I said, well, Quentin, I designed what I thought I would shoot. Um, having experience being a director, I knew where you, where you could put the camera or where you might put the camera. So I built these, particular elements to give you the freedom to shoot however you wanted to shoot. And so I having directed, you had sort of a revelation in how, yes. how it works for a director rather than just as a, an artist technician. Yes. And, and, and I feel like not only did that make me a better effects artist, um, because that would have been 2010, maybe 2011, mm -hmm. Um, not only did it make me a better effects artist, but it also made me realize that years and years of me communicating artistically with my sculptors and my painters and my mold makers allowed me a unique opportunity to be able to design the effects as, uh, as a director. So I had no idea that having directed that one time would have would have led me to this revelation of how to build effects so that you're giving the production and the director the maximum amount of flexibility. I and would have never even imagined that that would have been the, a result of me directing, but it was. Well, and the fact is, directors who've worked with K and B tend to do it often. You know, you are Quentin's guys, you are Ramey's guys, you were Romero's guys, you were my guys, you know, mm -hmm. and people keep coming back because there is definitely a, a sense of electricity and, and an excitement for what you're doing, you know, a full commitment, uh, commitment to it. You know, 26 different episodes of Masters of Horror with 13, you know, 20 different directors on, on that show, 
each of them having a vision of their own, which is why they were there. And you guys, mostly Howard in that case, figuring out how to approach each of those was a pretty tall order. And I can't believe, I'm sure you lost money on the show, but I can't well, believe how great it was. Well, you know, that that was a, a unique instance where we were able to tag team stuff because a lot of instances... Howard was in Canada and I was in LA. Yeah. You know, and a lot of, you know, the way that that can be kind of got a pretty instantaneous foothold in the industry was because there were three of us. So we could in essence d divide and conquer. Like right. there were shows that I would go work on and then there were shows that Bob would work on and then there were shows that Howard would work on. So when Masters of Horror came up like Howard really wasn't as close to George Romero as I was um, in terms of Sam Raimi. I think we kind of divided and conquered, but like with Robert Rodriguez, I would always supervise a lot of Robert shows. But what I liked about masters of horror was the directors and all the people that you worked with, not only the directors, but the writers. I mean, I still feel like, it was groundbreaking because you guys were taking mainstream writers and mainstream directors and putting them together. But like I had dealt with John Carpenter. I had supervised most of John's movies. Howard had never really worked with John before. So it, it gave us the benefit of an area of comfort because even though John didn't know Howard, John knew that it was my company and that I was involved and vice versa, because I think Howard knew Stuart Gordon um, more than I did. But then I had done Phantasm with Don Coscarelli, Phantasm 2. So the interesting thing about Masters of Horror was we had worked with all of those filmmakers in yeah. one capacity or another. So to be able to, you know, I, I think it just made everybody feel more at ease because they know, oh, we, yeah, we work with Greg or, you know, I knew Dario through George. Right. So Dario was a, was a different, was a different scenario. But again, ultimately there was a, I think all of these filmmakers had worked with us before. So they found a, a very comforting level of, of satisfaction that like, oh, well, we know what these guys are and John Landis and everybody. So. Yeah, you'd worked with everybody and, and everybody was thrilled with it. And, you know, the people you had involved, Karen Jackson and other people. Well, Karen did our Nightmare Cinema. Karen did uh, Nightmare with, Cinema. Yeah, with you guys. And that was a similar situation. Five different directors, but most of them having been very familiar with you guys and vice versa. But you started out making zombies. And now you've you've done like 10 years of doing Walking Dead zombies, maybe the best zombies in the history of, of cinematic uh, Walking Dead. Um, so tell me how that feels to have started that way and to be in the thick of it. Well, it's it's an honor. Uh, you know, Night of Living Dead scared the shit out of me when I <laughs> first saw it, knowing that that Evan City Cemetery was 20 minutes from my house still to this day. But I was genuinely 
shocked by that movie. You know, I mean, the filmmakers of the uh, late, you know, you look at Chainsaw and you look at Last House on the Left and you look at Night of the Living Dead and those uh, sort of groundbreaking movies. They were so taboo in what they what they did. You know, I mean, the little, uh, you know, little Karen Cooper that eats her dad's arm and then stabs her mom to death. There was so many sort of um, bold, uh, groundbreaking things that happened in those movies that just affected me. Um, so cut to 1977 and Dawn of the Dead. And again, it was like it was shot at the Monroeville Mall and it was the sequel to Night Living Dead. That movie, sitting in the theater, I went, I, I had a fake ID because I wasn't old enough to get into the theater to see Dawn of the Dead because he had to be 17. Uh, and I was 16 when the movie came out. So I actually scratched the date of my birthday and wrote it in with pen and changed the date so that I could get into the theater to see Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> and I had just recovered from the flu. So I was sitting there with a, with a thing of Twizzlers licorice and that opening scene where the zombie bites in the tenement building, bites into the woman's shoulder I almost vomited in the movie theater. And, and, and that wasn't even the first one. That was the bite in the neck. And then you get the bite in the arm. And, right. and that happens within the first 12 minutes of the movie. And I knew from that point on, I didn't trust a fucking thing that, that this guy was going to do to me, what George Romero was going to do. And I was changed forever. Um, between Jaws and Dawn of the Dead. And Dawn of the Dead was by far the most influential makeup effects movie that I had ever seen. And it, you know, I think up to that point, I was interested in getting into special effects and I didn't know if I wanted to do miniatures. And then when Jaws came out, I was like, oh, I want to build big sharks. I wanted to, <laughs> I didn't really... I didn't really realize what it is that I wanted to do until I saw Dawn of the Dead. And when I saw Dawn of the Dead, I, that, it was like, that's what I want to do. And then, of course, on the heels of it was, you know, The Howling and then American Werewolf in London and The Thing. You know, that, that, that time period between 78 and 82, um, that was it. You know, I mean, you, you could, you know, Friday the 13th, you couldn't you couldn't throw a severed head and not hit a great horror movie that was coming out um, at the time. And it was all genre stuff. It didn't even, for me, it didn't have to be horror. You know, I always look at like 1981 and 1982 is probably the two most fertile years of genre cinema. Um, and I want to say, I think it was, the thing came out 82 or 81? 82. Yeah, it was 82. Uh, the Howling and American Werewolf were 81, yeah. 81. Howling and American Werewolf was 81. But 82, it was like The Thing, E.T., I think Poltergeist, Cat Raiders People. of the Lost Ark, maybe, Creepshow, um, Road Warrior. Raiders was 81. Raiders was 81. Uh, but Cat People was 82, you know, the Paul Schrader one. And, but it, and, uh, and Star Trek too. like you just had yeah. those two summers. It was just every weekend there was another genre film coming out. Because I think 80, 
When was 82? Was 82 Escape from New York? Mm. No, 80. Might have been 80. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because it was after the fog. Uh, the fog was, you know, fog might have been fog 80, was 80, 80. Uh, 81 for Escape from New York or 82. But I mean, just imagine, imagine being, being the kid that I was. And then every weekend there was another amazing genre movie that was coming out that just pulled you into the theater. I, I, I was just, I, I think it was, I was born uh, per, at the perfect time to become inspired by all this amazing material and these great filmmakers and just over and over again, you know, seeing those films and being blown away by them. And, you know, that was before streaming. That was before home video. You would have to, you know, you'd go and you'd sit at the theater and you'd watch those movies over and over again. And you'd wait for effect sequences to happen, you know, uh, Joe Dante and and that transformation in the Howling, still, you know, and then Alien. I mean, I you know, you can't you, you can't even I can't even fathom how those times were uh, for me to be able to go to the theater over and over again and and see those movies and just be in awe of how they did it. You know, I mean, I, I, I loved movies in general, but I, you know, I mean, I was, I was obviously very, very uh, tuned into like the effects process and wanted to get to know who those people were. And were unfortunately, I wasn't alone because, you know, you had like Evening Magazine and PM Magazine and 2020 and all those shows that started showcasing Rob Bottin and Rick Baker, and they realized that that these guys, um, these makeup effects artists, were stars of the movie in their own right, and they were celebrated. and And I got yeah. into the industry sort of right before all of that stuff uh, really took hold. I mean, I think if I if I would have gotten into the business a year or two later, I probably would have missed. I think I would, it would, the wave would have crested. I think I got into it right at the right time. Moved to Los Angeles, um, you know, met Howard, started K&B, met Sam Raimi. I think it was the perfect time for me. If it would have been a year or two later, I probably would have missed it. Well, timing is everything. Um, let's, uh, after 10 years of Walking Dead, it's exciting to me that, you aren't sick of zombies yet, or are you? No, you know I'm not sick of zombies because it's I I feel like it's part of me. It's it's in my blood. You know, we we handled the effects for the third Walking Dead show called World Beyond, and it, it, we continue to challenge ourselves in terms of what we're designing and what we're coming up with. And the advantage of the last season and a half of Walking Dead was, you know, we had these whisperer characters that were that that sort of reinvigorated the show by creating these unique villains that wore the skins of zombies to mask their identities. 
So mm -hmm. I feel like we've been fortunate enough with The Walking Dead to not only continue to create unique zombies, but also to sort of take some little side trips with these different characters that we create, like the Whispers and um, some other characters like that. But certainly I think my affinity for it and my love for it uh, because of everything that that uh, Robert Kirkman created and Frank created in the pilot uh, in the first season, you know, I feel a responsibility, you know, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to continue to do that. That's pretty great. Well, we need to wrap it up soon, but not before we talk about your own show. Creep Show yeah. is back for a second season. So tell me about how how that came about and and you know, the idea of here the very first movie that you had the opportunity to work on has become the basis for your own series. What's funny about it is I was doing some publicity for The Walking Dead and I was in Australia and I was about to jump on a plane and I was like, I want something to read. Uh, I just want to just, I, I got an 18 hour flight and I just want to download a new book to read on my iPad. So I found this book called Knights of the Living Dead. <laughs> and it was a series of short stories that all took place the same night as Night Living Dead. So again, George is, is still reaching out to me in a unique way. Yeah. So I download this book and I start reading the stories and there's a Joe Lansdale story in there that I thought was interesting. There was another story written by a guy named Craig Engler. And I loved the story. And I was like, man, you know what? I want to shoot that. Like just as a little short film, I think I'm going to like reach out to the writer and see if uh, he would let me have the rights. So we reach out to him and we get a note back from his manager and he works for Shutter. Uh -huh. So all of a sudden this guy calls and says, uh, this guy Stan Spry calls and says, Hey, so, you know, we're putting this package together and we think it might be something that would interest you. Uh, we need a creative uh, producer to handle, to oversee Creepshow. And I was like, creep show. Like, wait, my creep show, creep show? Like, of course, because I thought it was my creep show. Yes. Uh, the show you were born to run. The show I was born to work on. And he said, Yeah, we're we're looking to we're looking for a partner. And I said, Well, it's interesting because I have a deal at AMC. So why don't we take Creep Show to AMC and make it part of my deal? So we took it to AMC, and of course, you know, there was lots of drama about whether it's an AMC show or a shutter show, even though they're both owned by the same company. And a lot of people, we had to go through a lot of weird sort of loophole things to get it to work. But I kind of just said, guys, I, this is, we have to make this work. I don't care how you do it. We need to make it work. And we did, we found a way legally to make it all work. We got the rights. Um, and the next, Thing I knew I was the showrunner on my own show based on Creepshow. Um, it was, and I've talked about this a lot, it was by and large the hardest thing I had ever done in my career. Um, <laughs> and now doing season two, I realized one of the reasons why it was so hard, which I couldn't realize when I was in it. 
because when I was in season one, I was like, you know, I wanted to design all the comic book covers and I wanted to design the page turns and I was designing all the creatures and I was, I really, I really wanted to do everything because that's what I was accustomed to doing. So when we got into season two and I hired the writers and the, um, we started developing the material, I realized that I had way overextended myself on season one, like designing all the comic book covers. Like I didn't need to draw each comic book cover and then hand that cover off to the artist. I could just let the artists run with it as an example. So I made a pledge to myself that on season two, I was going to enjoy the, the process more. I was going to have a lot more fun. You know, plus I wasn't as burned out because I went right into season one after wrapping Walking Dead. So I hadn't had like a time off in almost two years. So I took an extra month to be home with my family and develop the stories. And I wrote two of the scripts and I wrote uh, one of the stories is based on a story of mine. So I was more involved in the writing of it as well. And I rewrote two of the scripts. But I, I feel like my attitude is a, lot, uh, is a lot better this season in terms of I don't feel so overwhelmed. You're more I'm, relaxed. I'm more relaxed. My head's in the right space. And, of course, I was really having fun. I was like, this is amazing. I loved the casting process. I loved working with my art director and my production designer. We got all the way up to the fact that we shot one day. And then we shot one day and then they pushed the pause button. So mm. we had fantastic momentum going. I was really happy with where we were going and we hit pause. So I'm, I feel like it was, it was disappointing that we had to stop because we were at a great place, but knowing that we're going to pick it up and continue on there and I'm going to do six episodes. I mean, I wish we could do more. Uh, I wish they had pulled the trigger on more, but I got to go right from from this to Walking Dead to season 11. Um, but, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really too disappointed that I get to catch up with my children and my wife after being gone for a long time. So I'm here and I'm embracing the fact that I get to catch up on some lost time because I've been away, as you yeah. know, Mick, you know what it's like when you're away. It, it takes its yeah, toll on, the stand, on, you know? on the stand. I was so, away for uh, a year and that, that was rough, but, uh, but I, I do have to say that of season one, the finger that you directed that David Scow wrote the script for my favorite episode. And I hope that the United Ta monster talent agency in some form or another shows up on creep show. Well, that's it's interesting that you would say that. We have a we have a script season two that was written by John Esposito called Model Kid, and it's about uh, a little kid who paints monster models and imagines that they're uh, that the monsters are alive. So it's it's very much uh, reminiscent of of my upbringing and John Esposito's upbringing. You know, the interesting thing, thank you about The Finger. You know, The Finger was the first short story that, that I read for season one and convinced everybody that we needed to make it because it was an amazing story and it was a great opportunity. And DJ Qualls did a great job. 
yes. in the episode. <clears throat> and I really wanted to direct something that didn't have zombies in it and didn't have <laughs> uh, didn't have a monster per se because I feel like it it gave between that and gray matter it gave me an opportunity to direct something different that because you know most of my if you look at my resume it's like walking out walking out walking out blah, blah, blah. Um, aside from the second unit yeah. stuff that I had done so I was looking forward to the opportunity to direct something that didn't have zombies in it and was very different and I feel like it's funny and you know I I used to I used to sit with Andy Lincoln and Norman Reedus and Stephen Yun and I used to say guys we should make a comedy because yeah. we're all funny we all have great sense of humor and you know you don't really think about even though comedy is inherently a part of horror absolutely you don't, you don't imagine that you would put these people that you associate with horror and put them into a comedy but i was excited about how funny i thought the finger was and listen there were you know there were a few sort of tense moments when in post production where i had to kind of fight for the finger a little bit um <laughs> because I believed in it and I was grateful. I was grateful that the people that saw Creepshow really recognized that I poured all of my heart and soul into it, as did everybody that worked on it. It's because very that, evident. It's very evident. Anyway, Well, Greg, it's been, we could talk for hours about this stuff. And, you know, it's great to call you my friend. And I look Thank forward you. to when we can get together professionally as well and yeah. uh good luck on season two and everything going on it's an amazing career that you have and uh, and i couldn't be happier to have shared some of it with you well me too mick and listen i was so excited about nightmare cinema and how well received it was you know that was a labor of love for all of us um you, uh, bet. you know like yeah that's why you know, Howard and I wanted to do it because it was a chance to work with you. It was a chance to work with, with Joe again and the other great directors. And, um, and I know, you know, we knew going into it that, that, that it was a limited budget, but you know, that's why we do it. We do big movies so we can do little movies. And, and yeah, so it, it was for the best experience. I thank you guys so much for that. It was the best experience. And there is a very good chance there will be a sequel for Nightmare Cinema. Yay! So we'll, we'll all lose money again. <laughs> Perfect. Why not? All, all right, right Greg. Thanks so much. Great to catch up and uh, good luck and stay safe. You too, Mick. Thanks. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. 
Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.